Hello and welcome to episode 211 of The Dive Down, a Magic the Gathering podcast focused on the latest decks, trends, and strategies for the casual spike. My name is Dave here in Chicago, and Shane's not here, and Stan's not here, and I am all alone in my basement. All by myself. Except we do have someone here to save us from, I don't even know what two hours of me alone would sound like. We are lucky to have Devin O'Donnell, aka Doomwake, back with us today, fresh off of his trip to Pro Tour, uh, to uh, MagicCon Philadelphia, to be a part of all the Pro Tour festivities. Devin, how's it going? How's your trip? It was good. It was good. Glad to be back, Dave. Uh, had a little bit of, you know, maybe not the best sleep over the weekend, but had a, you know, I think I slept for like 12 hours last night. So <laughs> that felt pretty good. Uh, the drive, drive wasn't too bad going, you know, back and forth. It was like, I was talking to you, it was about a four and a half hour drive both ways, maybe a little added for traffic, but yeah, it was great. The food was, uh, the food was by far the best part of the trip. We actually stayed with, uh, with my, one of my friends is a professional chef, so he knows all the, all the good places to go. So we had some really good food over the weekend. <laughs> Wow. Can you drop the the number one thing that you ate over the weekend? Can you can you even choose? It's a tie between Herschel's and Angelo's. Okay. What were those? Herschel's was the pastrami it was like we got pastrami sandwich from Herschel's. That's the one that's in the in the market. And then Angelo's was like a, a steak and cheese place. You would not believe it when we went into the like we walked in because we they actually suggested that we order 45 minutes ahead of time just for a steak and cheese. And I kid you not, when we walked in, it was like there were it was packed wall to wall. There was a line of at least 20 people outside. It was unbelievable. But it was uh, it was worth the wait. <laughs> Those places, as much as I want to like hate on the the places where you have to wait in line, I mean, because there's a lot of those here in Chicago too. Like, they're always worth it. It's like you just maybe don't have the time. But the, they, I'm really disappointed by the food when there there's like a crowd there waiting for you know every day. So, well, that's awesome. I have not been to Philly too much. I did a, I did a couple of business trips there a few years back. It's a cool town. But um, yeah, it's been a couple of years. Definitely not since uh, not since we hit pandemic world. Anyway. We're happy to have you back and awesome to get your perspective on uh, on what happened to the Pro Tour and talk a little bit about what you did at MagicCon. So on this week's show, what we're going to do, number one, I just want everybody to know, listeners, this is our last week where we're going to be focusing on Pioneer as much as we have been lately in the lead up to the, the Pro Tour, you know. So all you modern stands out there, don't worry, we're not becoming just a Pioneer podcast, but there is one more week to talk about it. And I think the results are pretty cool. So what we're going to do is we're going to talk about a bunch of takes that I had and that Devin had maybe from going to and viewing Pro Tour Philadelphia. We're going to talk about, you know, what our reactions were. We're going to try to do that to kind of mix it up from a normal just meta breakdown. We're going to try to talk a little bit about what might stick, what might not stick, and where Pioneer might go from here. And then, of course, after covering the Pro Tour, just because I don't know why Wizards did this, but we have spoilers to talk about somehow from March of the Machine. Were you did you have any idea that that was going to happen yesterday? No idea. I uh, we, we haven't even been, what, a week, not even a week and a half out of Phyrexia. We already got spoilers for the next set. So, you know, I kind of wish they would maybe give us a little more time to breathe in the new set. But, uh, you know, I'm always down for previews. So, yeah, at least it's not coming out for like six weeks. That's the one thing I would remind people is that this really was the first look. And there's some interesting stuff to talk about. It might be more flavorish. So we don't have a long list of cards to go over. But, you know, we'll throw that at the end as a little bit of a uh, dessert at the end of this long discussion about Pro Tour Philly and Pioneer. But first, a little bit of housekeeping. Uh, we have new patrons, Sean, 
G. And I believe another patron named Mr. Mac Attack might have snuck in at the last minute. So I thank you both for your support. Um, we don't have any new reviews right now. So please, if you would consider hopping over to iTunes or Spotify, give us some stars, give us a review. We'd really appreciate it. It helps people find the show, helps us feel better about ourselves, and helps our wives understand why we do this work every week. If you want to support us directly, you can go to patreon.com slash the dive down to check out the different tiers that we have available for support. The biggest one that we always tell people about is that a dollar a week gets you access to our Discord, where there's a really good group of people who have been part of our Patreon for a long time. They're welcoming to new players, um, you know, kind of talking about decks constantly and uh, other stuff too. So come and check it out, patreon.com slash the dive down. If you want to support us without any technocrats getting a hold of any of your money, you can go check out uh, the divedown.com slash store, check out some merch. We got hats, we got fanny packs, we got, I don't even remember now, uh, all kinds of different stuff. But go check it out if you want to represent us at game stores or tournaments near you. The Rhino shirts. Yes, Rhino shirts. Rhino shirts are the best seller. It's really funny to see the, um, you know, on Squarespace, that's where our website is. You can see the analytics in the background. And so it's like every, the page views for every piece of product is like around one number. And then the Rhino shirt views is like 15 times as many views. It's, it's really funny. <laughs> like that's the only one that people care about. Check out the Rhino shirt. Last couple of things here. Uh, our longtime sponsor and partner, Manitraders.com, where you can rent Magic online cards for you to play. You can use code THEDIVEDOWN10 to get 10% off your first two months of card rentals. That's Manitraders.com. Barrister and Man, our skincare, grooming, soap, everything kind of partner. You can get 15% off your first order from Barrister and Man at The Dive Down with the code THEDIVEDOWN15. Help Will out if you can. And finally, if you want a little bonus just for being a listener, go check out Nerd Rage Gaming. You know, we were the official podcast of the Nerd Rage Championship Series last year. Hope to help them out again this year. But if you go use code DIVEAT at checkout, you'll get 8% off what you buy from them. All right. And that's it for the plugs. Devin, that's a lot of plugs, isn't it? It's a lot of plugs. But, you know, you got to pay the bills, right? Exactly. Exactly. Again, we have to explain it to our wives. So let's dive in. Pro Tour Phyrexia. So like I said in the intro, we're going to try do a little bit of a kind of like a I'm going to present an argument to Devin and then going to see if he buys or sells it a little bit is the idea. We might fall off of the theme as we get into the discussion, but we wanted to try to put together something that wasn't just a normal kind of like meta breakdown, talk about through the day and all that kind of stuff. So we just want to give you the takeaways. We had kind of about a dozen thoughts that I think people can consider as they consider how to think about Philadelphia. What if I, what if I buy everything? If you buy everything, then I'm going to feel really good about myself. I'm going, to, I'm going to go upstairs after this and have a, have a nice pint of ice cream and go to sleep a happy, happy grandpa. So we talked a little bit about the gathering for you already with your food, food uh, which you get to check out as far as food goes. What was the, the magic like for you at Pro Tour Philly? So I know that you, know, you weren't in the, in the Pro Tour this time, still potentially working towards that in the future at different points in time. But I know that you played some cards. What, what was interesting to you? What were you trying to do? Did you have any goals? Um, goals specifically, not really. I really, well, there, I guess the one goal I really wanted to qualify for the secret layer showdown thing is what it was called. So basically, uh, to give a small breakdown, there were qual there were four qualifier events, the top eight of each of those events qualified for the secret layer finals. And then just for basically getting to that, well, getting to that finals, you got the secret layer rag event. I don't know if you saw it on Twitter, but it's, it looks really nice. So it's amazing. Yeah, I saw where that came from. I, I mean, I saw the pictures. I didn't realize where it came from. So that's where those cards were coming from, huh? Yep. 
And then uh, I don't know if you saw the the winner as well got a secret layer brainstorm foil, which was apparently is only one of four. And I guess they're doing four, like one for each pro tour. So apparently that brainstorm oh is there's only four of those in the world. And I can't even begin to imagine how much that would be. But yeah, past that, that was Pioneer. I played one of those qualifiers. I played the Pro Tour qual the they had Pro Tour qualifiers on Friday and Saturday, so I did Pro Tour qualifier on Friday and then the Pioneer qualifier on Saturday. Um, the Pro Tour qualifier was uh, Frexia sealed. My pool was pretty good. Ended up kind of bombing out a little bit. Um, lost to the same rare a couple of times, mm-hmm. and then had a couple uh, rough matchups with. I played Boats in the Saturday Pioneer qualifier. Um, had a couple of rough beats there, so I ended up 0-2 dropping. But I played a ton of drafts, did a lot of side drafts throughout the weekend because I'm a really big fan of the the draft format for Phyrexia. And uh, yeah, I just had I just had a great time overall. So you, I was going to ask you because I saw that you were playing limited. We're not limited podcast, but just for my own curiosity. So a lot of people have been complaining about this draft draft format. It's too fast, et cetera, et cetera. It, what do you think is what's your take on it after playing it for a while and if you're coming out liking it? Oh, it's fast, but I like fast. I'm a big fan. It, I I don't know if you I posted a, a draft deck on Twitter the other day or earlier today. Excuse me, the uh, the Boros like uncombat equipment. I that was like the three mana two two double strike equipment. I had four of those and <laughs> four. <laughs> I yeah, I had four of them. It was the easiest seven wins of my life. But yeah, the format's really fast. Wow. But I like that. I really like aggressive formats because it's really a lot more about uh, it's a lot more about combat, attacking, blocking combat mm-hmm. tricks. And you have to be aware of all the combat tricks. And there's a lot of them in the format. So I think it for me personally, I actually enjoy that that gameplay a lot more than like the, you know, five color soup kind of formats. I totally agree. It's so funny for you to say that because I, I don't know if you know, but I used to be... So when I came back to Magic, I only played Limited for about 10 years. And that was all I did. And I, I went to like um, GPs and played Sealed and stuff like that, but I never made a constructed deck until I, until Shane got into playing Magic and then we start, both started getting into Standard and a little bit of Constructed. But the set that I came back to in Limited was Zendikar, original Zendikar, which fast, classically fast. And then some of my favorite sets were honestly my favorite to play. Ixalan is one of the ones where I had my highest Magic Online rating ever, basically, along with Kaladesh, both of which were not known for being slow formats. Kaladesh is maybe a little bit slower, but Ixalan was sort of like two drop plus a combat trick and hold on for dear life, which I, I really enjoy too. Territorial Hammer Skull, baby. Oh, yeah. Yeah. I was just trying to think of the name of the one mana vampire trick that gave like what did it give like first strike to a vampire if he used it was, like, plus two plus two and gave first yeah. strike that card was absurd that card was great yeah yeah all right maybe we can do a bonus episode about limited sometime but awesome so you played boats how did mm-hmm. you how did you end up what did you end up we kind of heard how it went but um what did you what configuration did you go with just out of curiosity given what we talked about last week so when I, I I actually saw it was uh, Shutter MTG. I think her name is Ash Johnson on Twitter. I saw mm-hmm. her, her post her PT list, and it looked really interesting. There was three main deck bank busters, no love struck beast, and I love the. It, it just looked like a really solid shell. So I I was going to play that. I played in a side event on Friday as like kind of preparation for the Saturday qualifier. I lost to Rakdos twice, and you can imagine mm-hmm. if you're adding Reckon or Bankbuster to your main deck and still losing to Rakdos twice, then you're probably doing something wrong. I don't know if it was just you know That's variance, but 
yeah, I ended up going back to the other version. The version that I played was, I think, two Luca main, two MIG laws, and then a third Luca in the sideboard with no swords. That's what wow. I played. Cool. Yeah, and you felt like that. Do you still feel okay about that kind of configuration going forward? Do you think you're going to make some changes? or If creativity is going to really pick up in popularity, I think Luca's, Luca might be more maybe more relegated to the sideboard because it's kind of mm. sketchy as like a five mana play in that matchup and boat's already not that sure. great so if yeah depending on you know we'll, we'll talk about the metagame over the pt depending on how that shakes up the format i think luca might be might be more of relegated to the sideboard but miglaw is still really good awesome good to know still regretting that i refuse to talk about that card just because it is a silly name earlier but i got over it card's just good all right so number one thing the take we're going to start with I think is the most milk toast take of the entire tournament, perhaps, but that is that the top of the registered Pioneer meta was basically exactly as we would expect. And that's when I say the top of the meta, I'm talking about the top 53% of the meta was split between five decks. And I bet that everybody listening to this podcast, I'm sure you can, could have in the dark guessed exactly what these five decks were. So I'm, I'm going to read it off really quick. So Rakdos Midrange was number one with 15.1%. Monogreen Devotion was number two with 13.7%. Gruel Vehicles, uh, 9.6%. Lotus Field Combo, 7.8%. Mono White Humans, 6.8%. That is 53% of the meta, as I mentioned, between five decks that we're all extremely, extremely familiar with. Yeah, I mean, this is, you know, we talked about it last week. This is essentially, I think if we, all the, I pretty much predicted this exactly with the swapping of Lotus Field and Gruel. Um, You know, I maybe predict, I actually, it's, it it, honestly, it's a little bit lower than what I initially thought. Cause I think when we talked last week, I said, you know, 20 Rakdos, 15 green. So I think there were maybe a little bit less Rakdos players, but roughly about what we expected. Um, I personally thought Lotus Field would be more represented than Gruel Vehicles, but you know, a little pleasant surprise and uh, model way coming in fifth. But yeah, like you said, just these are these are the this is the decks to beat. This is, you know, this is going to be the top of the metagame. And I don't really think much is going to is going to change these top five. You know, I mean, metagame shifts and stuff like that. But these are these are the five best decks. Do you think that so one thing that I was looking at when I was looking at this top three list was like, OK, if, if you were coming into this tournament and you knew for sure, and a lot of people did know for sure, with high degree of confidence, let's say, Rakdos Midrange, Monogreen Devotion, Gruel Vehicles, plus or minus, like that's the top three decks. Is Lotus Field the deck that you pick to go into a field that you know is going to be like 40-ish percent or 35 percent those other three decks? Or do you think that, that that's not really a great matchup for that deck and it's just because Lotus Field is intrinsically powerful on its own that it still ends up in this tier? So I, I like Lotus Field against Gruul. I like it a decent amount against Rakdos. It's a little bit sketchier against Green. Um, the thing about Lotus Field is it's incredibly. It, I think I don't know if you if you saw this article from Paulo a couple weeks ago, but he there was an article that Paulo wrote where it's like the hardest decks to play in Pioneer, and he had Lotus Field. Mm-hmm. I, I believe, I'm pretty sure he had Lotus Field as number one, and Lotus Field is. Once you know the combo lines, it's not the easy, it's not the hardest deck to execute the combo, but there's a lot of spots where if your opponent has specific hate pieces, like how to play around Damping Sphere, how to play around Narset, how to play around, you know, Pithing Needle on Thespian Stage, there's just, there's a lot of counterplay to the combo, and I think maybe 
if you had a lot of experience and a lot of preparation with Lotus Field, um, as we saw a lot of the top, like the one of the best, one of the best Lotus Field uh, uh, players who did well in the event was Nathan Stoyer, who's the world champion. Yeah. He's incredibly good at Magic. Right. Um, so I think that's you know, and I think I saw Joel set top sixteen or top thirty two with Lotus Field. I think he went uh, X and five or X and six. So yeah, just, I'm pretty sure know, he was top sixteen. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, and these like these dedicated Lotus Field players, these are you know the really good players. Um, but yeah, I, I think it's a fine choice if you know what you're doing at the end of the day. Yeah. Well, I think that's yeah. We'll come back to that. I think in the next point actually about it being a fine choice if you know what you're doing. And then the fifth deck to me, so mono white was still a little bit of a surprise to me that there would be this many players that would show up with basically just the fast aggro deck in in the field, especially at a pro tour. I kind of feel like decks like that get underrepresented in fields like this. And, you know, like we talked about last week, I think control tends to get overrepresented in fields like this. Why, how do you think it ended up being that mono white had basically as many people as Lotus Field to kind of still sneak into that top five just because it's really good? I think a lot of the people who played mono white probably expected a lot more Lotus field. I think they kind of predicted what we predicted where it would be, you know, Rectos MGD and then third Lotus field and then gap mm-hmm. gruel vehicles. Because if you expected more gruel than Lotus field, mono white's probably not the best choice. Mono white is traditionally not that great against gruel. Um, but it has a good matchup against Lotus field, a slightly, you know, we'll say maybe 60% ish against Monogreen. We'll look at the win rates later. Um, so yeah. I think if, if those are the two, the two decks that you're targeting, then mono white was a good choice. And, you know, given the, given the actual spread of the metagame, it probably ended up doing worse than what people expected because gruel was more represented than Lotus field. Yep. All right. But this take, this is pretty, I mean, this is just the facts, right? I mean, this is what people thought was going to be here. This is the canvas that we that the story of the weekend got painted against in, the, in a weird kind of way, right? So let's talk about the thing that was actually surprising about this. So our next take here is that the thing that was actually surprising about this top 50% of the meta was that its performance was not good, I think you could probably say overall. And I think it's nuanced because when you have decks that get up to be 15% of the field, you know, weird things start to happen. But once we got a look at the non-mirror, non-buy win rates from a couple of different people, including C. Marty on Reddit and Dr. Frank Karsten, you know, here's what the, the win rates from those five decks looked like. So Rakdos Mid was 46.43%. Monogreen Devotion was 46.63%. Gruel Vehicles was 47.4%. Lotus Field was 52.68%, but it was also only 47% after day one. Which So I think that the fact that four players carried Lotus Field into the top 16 really like buffed that win rate kind of in day two. And, and then Mono White Humans, shockingly kind of, 36.2% win rate. And then finally, the combined win rates from this top half of the meta was 46%. Like, so I went back through and added up all the wins and losses of all these decks. 46% was what th- these decks look like. That's like really mediocre. Wow, that's kind of crazy. When you think about that, for the, the top half of the metagame, they won less than half of their matches. You would, you know, that's just not how the numbers would normally work out. Yeah, that's kind of crazy. I, I think a lot of that has to do with, I think we'll, we'll talk about this after, but the rise in creativity, because the issue with, I think specifically all, like if you look at all these decks, Rakdos, Monogreen, Gruul, and 
Okay, yeah, maybe those those three definitely have a, a rough creativity matchup. Lotus Field, Mono White are maybe a little bit closer. But yeah, I think that might have to do with it because I, there was that, the entire team that played creativity there. I think pretty sure their team did very extremely well. Mm-hmm. And um, I think that's part of it. Is maybe it's just, you know, it's one of those things where maybe the people that played this, like, top half of the metagame, they were probably just, maybe they picked their deck on raw power level and not necessarily, like, as much. Pioneer's weird because you can metagame for, like, let's say you go all in on on some Rakdos midrange sideboard cards, and then you end up not only, you play against, like, less Rakdos, more monogreen, then that could kind of skew the percentages as well. So maybe the these decks are either... Maybe they tried to pick a very specific metagame and they got that choice and they got they just were off a little bit mm-hmm. or they tried to have a cyborg that was more well-rounded. And because of that, they're sacrificing card quality in other matchups. So that that those are two things to think about here. Yeah, I think the, you, you're bringing up the creates and, you know, no spoilers, because, of course, we're going to talk about creativity. It was the deck that won the tournament in the hands of a Hall of Famer, but we'll get to that in a little bit. But the interesting thing about the matchup splits it, with creativity, and can I just say I love that Wizards kind of s- somewhat sanctioned putting this data out there, because like they used to ask people to take this kind of stuff down, right? But now it's their writer putting it up on his Twitter channel. They must know that he's going to, or his Twitter feed, he knows, they must know that he's going to do it. So I appreciate this for sure. The matchup splits on creativity are pretty interesting, actually. So is it creativity went 6-13 and 13 against Rakdos? So it only had a 33% win rate against Rakdos, but it was 7-5 and five against green, Mono Green Devotion, so 58% there, 12-4 and four against Boats, 75% win rate against Boats, and it went 6-2 and two against Lotus Field combo and 3-1 and one against Mono White Humans. That's pretty wild to be you know, 60% plus <laughs> against every deck that's not Rakdos. Even though Rakdos is the biggest deck in the room, I mean, you make up a lot of ground either by dodging matchups because it's only 15% and then picking up all these other points from all these other decks is uh, pretty pretty interesting. Yeah, like if you think about it from a number perspective, even if you expect to play against Rakdos 15% of the time, so 15 out of 100 uh, we'll say that's what 15, like one in six matches, mm-hmm. one in seven matches, roughly. So, I mean, if you're if you're only average to play against Rakdos one and a half times in the tournament, and you just accept those L's, you're still going to go eight and two in the in the constructed portion. Right. You know what I mean? Yeah. So it's like even if you give up one matchup, as long as you to make up the percentage points enough in those other matchups, then that's totally fine. Even if it's the most played deck. Yeah. Yeah. That's interesting. It's it's funny that you say this because there were some people in our Aaron and a couple other people in our discord today. We're actually having this exact same conversation about a different deck. So it's funny that you bring up the exact same thing Aaron was trying to say, which is like, it's okay to punt against the most popular deck. If you feel like you really are gaining a bunch of stuff against a bunch of points against all the other decks that are out there. Um, But still shocking with that. This half of the meta did this badly. And, you know, I, I, I took some questions from listeners for you today since we knew, you know, last week we didn't tell anybody we were going. We wanted to be a surprise. Hey, Doom Wake's on. Everybody get excited. This week I, I let people know that you were coming back. And um, a couple of people asked questions. One one of our listeners, Van Gogh is their screen name in um, in Discord, asked, is Mono Green overrated? And my my question actually is, are all of these decks overrated or do you think any of these decks are overrated? Like, is this just what happens sometimes to the most popular decks in the room? 
Uh, yeah, well, especially at a pro tour, yeah. you know, it's like a lot of these teams will, you, you saw the, the super team of like, I remember exactly everybody, I pulled the photo, but it was like Reed, Siggy, LSV, uh, you know, just all these Game like, safe. yeah, yeah, Gabe Steve, Martin Jews, all these like incredibly, incredibly skilled, incredibly talented people. When you put these, all of these minds together, they're, you know, they're looking at all different types of data, like recent win rates and recent challenge results and, and all of these things that they're using to predict a metagame. And it's all about like, if you predict the metagame, right. And in, in this case, because I think that's why you see a lot of these low win rates with these top five decks, because everybody was prepared for them. Yeah. You know, it's a lot of people want to want to complain about like Fable and Rakdos midrange or Nykthos and stuff like that in Monogreen. It's like, you know, I think if you put in this is this these results are really really show that if you put in the work and you put in you know the the numbers and you want to beat these decks you definitely can yeah yeah so what we're saying as far as van gogh's question goes is these decks are probably properly rated right it's as far as it goes yeah, it's just you you can be you can fight them in a in a controlled environment and if you are have the time to do the metagaming you can do it but these decks probably aren't overrated or underrated they're popular for a reason they're generally good all right so let's take a look at the next kind of quartile of our results because they they broke out kind of nicely in this way so our third third kind of headline about the tournament or take is you know if the top of the meadow is fully stock i actually think the next quartile the next 25 percent was almost equally stock except their results were surprising and you know I put in here in the headline, it was like, we should all immediately start playing these decks. I don't know if that's true. But the next 25% of the meta is Azorius Control with 6.4%, Rakdos Sacrifice with 6.4%, Is It Creativity with 6.4%, and Is It Phoenix with 5.0%. I'm going to give you the win rates before we get into the thoughts generally. Blue Eye Control was 55.4% win rate. Recto Sacrifice was 55.7. Is it Creativity 55.7? Is it Phoenix 55.6? Now, these are not like world beating. You know, having a 55% win rate in a Pro Tour is not, I mean, it is positive and it looks great compared to the decks that we looked at just now. But um, what do you think about people selecting these decks? We already talked about creativity a little bit, but so maybe let's talk about Azor- Azorius Control, Rakdos Sacrifice, and Is it Phoenix quickly before we get back to creativity. Yeah, so I mean, all four of these decks, these are kind of like the metagame calls, you know, not necessarily going to be the top of the top, not, um, not, as much as what people expected, but based on based on the actual expected metagame, that these can have a good enough matchup against a lot of those decks. Like for example, Asorius Control, good against boats, good against uh, goodish against Mono Green, good against Mono White, so on and so forth. You can talk about all these different decks. The thing that honestly surprises me the most is the Phoenix win rate mm-hmm. because I was kind of under the assumption that Phoenix is, is never really ever going to be a dead deck. There's a, you know, a, a contingency of players that really enjoy playing it. Um, but it's just surprising to me that it did so well because in my experience with Phoenix, I don't know if you, if, if you played a decent amount of Phoenix sure. pioneer, yeah. but my experience, it feel like it was never that great against Rakdos. And mm-hmm. it, I was always like, feel like I was a coin flip against green, um, and the, you know, those being the two most popular matchups, I'm, I'm kind of surprised it did so well, but maybe they had a good enough plan for the matchup. Yeah, maybe. I mean, I generally, and I, you know, I have very small sample sizes. I don't get to play as many games as m- most people. Right. But the, is it Phoenix 
and also I spread out what I'm playing so much to talk about on the show. But when I played Phoenix in Pioneer, for what it's worth, I always felt kind of okay against Rakdos, but definitely bad against Mono Green. I mean, similar to the way that I felt like Is It Phoenix was bad against Tron in Modern, like it's also it's equally true here because they just go over the top and then you're done. Like, and and that's that's just it. But I do think that. The thing that was most surprising to me is just Phoenix felt like it was getting unpopular because of how much Lotus Field there was. And we still had, you know, 11 people, which is sort of close to the same number of people that brought Lotus Field. You know, 17 people brought Lotus Field, 11 brought Is It Phoenix, even though all those Is It players probably thought there was going to be a lot of Lotus Lotus Field here. Um, in- interestingly, didn't really see anything new in, in that deck and any of those decks, really, which I thought was kind of fascinating. It's not like they changed their configuration to try to fight the metagame from what I could tell. The The last thing I would say that was interesting before we get back to Is It Creativity is that even though these decks all had good win rates, none of them top-aided. And they were only medium True. close to, to top-aiding, like the highest one from this list. So Marcio Carvalho came in 11th with Rakdos Sacrifice, Jean-Emmanuel Depraz came in 13th with, is it Phoenix? So they're kind of like in that top 16 area, but they weren't, that they didn't quite get that last win to be able to, to make it. Of course, the loss that they might've had might've come in draft. So, you know, sometimes it's tough when you look at this kind of like final rankings to be able to figure out how well they're right. Exactly how well their constructed deck carried them. But Yeah. Yeah, because the final record includes, for those of you who don't know, the final record includes all the, you know, the 10 constructed rounds and the six limited rounds. So somebody yeah. you know who went 11 and 5, we don't necessarily know what exactly their constructed record was. So yeah, it's a good point. Yeah, it is here on MTG Melee, but I'm not going to dive into it because we got lots of other stuff to talk about. But by the way, MTG Melee amazing to be able to have this data as well. It's all stuff that like we just didn't have when I started playing play Magic 10 oh, years yeah, this- ago. Website is so good. It's just it gives you everything. It shows the archetype breakdown, their win rates, all that kind of stuff. So yep. yeah, big shout out to Melee. Yeah. So let's talk about let's go back to creativity because it did seem like creativity was in particular the darling of this tournament. It, as we said, it won the tournament. Channel team Channel Fireball brought it, which is probably the team with the most pro tour uh, pro tour experience. The, definitely the team with the most Hall of Famers. We kind of talked a little bit about how they might have been able to ascertain that it was good against all the other decks and not that great about Rakdos. Do you think that there was anything else that chose them to or led them to choose playing this deck? Or what what do you think about this as a choice for a team full of pros? I think it so I, I see on the notes here you put boomers just like to play Splinter Twin, yeah. I guess. I like that note. Which honestly, at the end of the day, this is a deck, you know, and People like those kinds of decks for a reason. They're they're combo control decks. So the creativity deck has a very like a very robust combo plan. It's very consistent at, at setting up a turn five creativity for Xenagos and World Spine Worm. So you have that like threat of, you know, your opponent can never tap out because you always have that, similar to what Splinter Twin had. And then you also just have this really good control game plan. You have Shark Typhoons, you have Muta Vaults, you have Fable of the Mirror Breaker. All these cards just provide uh, a ton of advantage. And they just allow you to play these like different games. It gives you more agency yeah. over over the course of the game. You can play, you can like pivot to one plan. I know you talk a lot about like hammer, you know, you're you're trying to go on one plan and then you pivot to the next one. It's very similar here where you're like, I'm on the beatdown plan, but then you know, now I can't, they're stopping my beatdown plans. So now we have to sp- pivot to plan B, what's plan C, stuff like that. Right. So yeah, I mean, it's and, and the nice thing about creativity is I don't 
really think outside of Azorius control, which is a rough matchup, I will say that. But outside of that, I think the matchups against the rest of like and Azorius control is in the top five. But I think the the matchup against the top five, I think, are pretty good for the creativity deck. And one last thing I will say, uh, I actually I ran into Siggy at the uh, at the PT and we, we got up. We caught up a little bit. And he was, uh, you know, mentioning that he had watched my stream and he was watching me play creativity. And that was where I think that's where he started playing it. And then he's convinced everybody else to play it. So I don't want to toot my own horn a little bit, but wow, you know, I, may, I might have had a part. No, I'm willing to give you all that credit. I think you should call Reed Duke. I know he lives on the East Coast somewhere as well. And at least the guy could buy you dinner. That's that's hilarious. I, and that's the kind of content you only get from the dive down when Devin is on. So there you go. So which of these decks would you try again? that is are you are you believing in creativity are there any of these that you're interested in or what like of this tier is that just clearly the most powerful one to you or what do you think creativity for sure i've i've i played a ton of this deck i think i I made a couple deep challenge runs with it um been tearing up the f local fnm scenes with it nice (laughs) (laughs) but yeah i just think it's again as we talked about it's like it the deck that gives you a lot of agency um it really allows you to pivot from all these different types of plans you can have like different sideboard creativity targets i know they played holebreaker horror but people have experimented with dream trawler against rakdos and all Mm -hmm. these different like void winnower against mono green you can you can do a lot of different customization with your creativity targets but yeah i think i think creativity is here to stay i would not be surprised surprised if over the next couple of weeks we saw kind of um like if you look at the challenge and, and league results i would not be surprised if creativity maybe overtook moved up a couple of spots and maybe snuck into that top five yeah i mean i think part of it honestly will be aided by two things one is it's a popular deck in modern two or at least it was at different points in time so there are probably a lot of players who are maybe on the fence about pioneer or people who, who play a lot of pioneer magic online who are used to playing like well i'm just going to fire up mono green devotion again who maybe like to play creativity in modern that'll just be like fine i'll try i'll try a similar deck here as well um and then the other thing is just yeah the idea that it's just something new and more c- control combo-ish which we don't this is really the main control combo ish deck that's available in pioneer right now. And so like you said, like I, like we said, boomers like to play, is it a splinter twin? It's honestly why I tried to play creativity and modern a bunch and why there's a, you know, there's a chance I'll try this too. I will say, wow, did creativity go up in price over the last few days? Finally, I've been waiting like two years for that card to price spike and now it's $30 a pop. So look out if you don't have them. Glad I got mine for five bucks, you know, six months ago. Exactly. Ago. Yeah. It's been waiting. Small set mythic. So let's move on to the, the next thing. So here's, here's another thing that was interesting to me is that everything that we talked about, the poor performance of the top half of the meta, this kind of like these, this tier of challenger decks that did better than we thought they were going to. The funny thing is that the people who actually made it through from day one to day two, the meta was basically exactly the same day one to day two. And I don't think we should be surprised by that. I just, something I wanted to point out. So there was actually more Rakdos and Gruul than day two than there was in day one. Both of those went up by a few percentage. Rakdos went up to 16%. Gruul vehicles went up to 11%. Is it creativity became the third highest represented deck or fourth highest represented deck, sorry, in day two. It was tied for fourth with Azorius Control. Monogreen Devotion and Gruul were tied for second and third. So those all went up, interestingly, but 
it's it's kind of a funny quirk of how tournaments can work when you're eliminating people because what happened is even though we had these results that were kind of all over the place across the small sample size of day one it was kind of like everybody just fell away in a way that fit the statistics of the metagame without any real outliers yeah i mean uh i think you know a lot of these when i'm trying to see exactly what went down but kind of racto sack went up a little bit i think mono white took a big dip which makes sense given it's you know abysmal win rate because it was 6.8 percent and if you look at day two it was 4.41 percent so a little bit of a dip there yeah um but yeah so with you know looking at this this particular metagame a lot of it didn't change specifically in terms of like what decks and, and percentages too much but like the one thing that did change is like given the win rates like you know exactly their positioning in the total like the, the percent of the day two meta that's kind of what changed the most but yeah a lot of this is somewhat surprising or not surprise excuse me not surprising a lot of it's what we kind of will be expected um but yeah gruel vehicles being third got racked sack but yeah i think this is you know pretty much what we uh, what we would expect yeah and I, I the main reason i wanted to bring this point up was one because i took the time to do a pivot table of my own of the day day one results so i just wanted want to put that out there for everybody but also it was just fascinating to me that it's not like the people who, if they had a bad Rakdos matchup, who snuck through day one without seeing Rakdos suddenly got a lot less likely to see Rakdos. Like it was just the same tournament all the way through. So we, I don't think that the results reflect like a strange kind of metagame emerging at the top tables with maybe a couple of exceptions that we'll talk about in the next bucket. So let's let's move on to the next bucket. So my next take was that some of the rogues really did actually break the format this time. Now, maybe it's true, maybe it's not, but I do think, you know, creativity aside, which is the deck that's kind of the headline of this tournament, there were clearly a couple other decks that were headlines as well that did not fall into the top half of the meta. So these were a few left field decks that a few brave pilots were willing to bring along that served them well. And I think the place we have to start with when we're talking about this is Auras, and specifically Selesnia Auras. So Benson Mads or Benton Madsen was the player, the last player to be undefeated, started out day one 8-0 and managed to get into the top eight after round 15. So they had a 4-3 record in day two to close to close everything out. You know, the meta breakdowns that I looked at, one of them had all the all the um, Aura's decks lumped together. But let's look at Frank Karsten's metagame breakdown. There were only two pilots on Celestia Aura's, it looks like, and they went 12 and 7. There was an Orzov Aura's deck that went 6 and 3, and an Obzan Aura's deck that went 18 and 12. So there were probably three or four players on that. All of those decks had at least a 60% win rate, with Selesnia Auras, the deck that went the farthest, farthest having a 63.2% win rate. I think it's a reasonable sample size with that many people playing it. What do we think happened with Auras? How did, how did Auras manage to, to do well in this tournament? It's all Skrell, baby. So the um, the Abs in Auras deck in particular, I think that was a team, because I, I was actually... I. To, on today's stream, before we uh, before we started recording, I played an Abzan Auras deck I found from Simon Nielsen, and I believe that might be that team deck list. Um, it's a little bit different from from Benton's, but specifically, if we look at uh, at Benton's deck list, this was the uh, 
this was green white. So we we got four glade cover scouts, four screlves, mm-hmm. which is uh, a you know brand new card that we had some little bit of hype on in the preview show. Specifically, the thing that I like about this deck is it has. I guess not the full eight copies, but four ethereal armor, three all the glitters. It's really just kind of, I've seen the list that I played today only had one all the glitters as kind of like a tutor target for light pause. And Mm -hmm. I think this is a really good approach, especially with Skrelv, because like normally before Skrelv, you kind of had to shove, you kind of either had to mulligan to Glade Curver Scout every time, or you had to just like, you know, cast your two drop on turn two and just cross your fingers. But now, right. even in the hands that don't have scout, you can just go turn one scrub, turn two, two drop, and you have the protection backup already. And as soon as you get to untap with light pause or SRAM, you know, the, the fireworks begin. So I really, I like Benton's deck list a lot. I think it's, uh, you know, very well built for the metagame. As far as the Aura's deck's place in the metagame, it's just an incredibly fast and incredibly hard to hate out deck. There's not a lot of cards that people are playing outside of Extinction Event, which is a card that you have to worry about out of Rakdos. But and Filigree Silex, I think, is the other card that that also tar- you know your Ratchet Bomb effect is something that has some some play against this card. But yeah, at least against Filigree Silex, like the car- if they don't if you if they play card on turn three and they get Silex, it's kind of face up um, and you can maybe kill them before that. But like with Rakdos, if they're thoughts easing you, you, you might not have enough stuff to be able to kill them before they can get to extinction event. And it's not face up because you know, they don't like play the card and then down tick. So, but yeah, I think it's in a really good spot, has an incredibly good mono green matchup, uh, very good mono white matchup. And I think if you just look at the deck across the board in terms of the like the top five decks, just really good matchups there. And it's always just nice to, you know, play a deck that has this linear of a game plan, especially when, you know, there's not like Liliana the Veils or Shieldred's Edict. There's not a ton of those cards floating around. So I think it's a pretty good metagame call and uh, I, I love the list a lot. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, I mentioned last week that I really like to play Auras in Pioneer. I've played Black-White Auras. I've played back when I really enjoyed Historic. Blue-White Auras was my deck of, of choice in that format. But of course that had access to, you know, crazier card, much crazier cards than this one does. <clears throat> Luris. <laughs> yeah, well, Luris, and also I'm suddenly forgetting the name of the, the card from Zendikar or Rise of the Eldrazi, the like enchantress that draws cards and gets plus two plus oh, two. Oh, Spirit Dancer. Yeah, Core Spirit Dancer. Exactly. Yeah, that card is absurd. But, I, you know, I do think that this is a deck that has a strong core. It was pretty good in the RCs in the fall. At least I remember at DreamHack, it, it got a little bit of heat to it. I think some of the other regional ones also had people playing it. I will say, not to be a little bit of a downer, um, if you look at the matchup breakdowns, according to Frank Karsten, the Orzov Auras deck never faced Rakdos. Uh, the Selesnia Auras deck only faced Rakdos one time in the Swiss and and won. And then the Obzon Auras deck, the team faced Rakdos three times and did not win a match with it. So this is maybe another one of those decks where like, okay, you're trading a lot of percentage, you know, so if you look at the number of matches that they played between there, you're talking about how you should play Rakdos maybe once every six or seven matches. This is clearly below that rate by probably, I don't know, four matches, let's say, maybe like maybe they should have played it twice as many times as they did. So that might have put a little bit of a dent in it. But I I do think this deck still has a chance to be really good. Theoretically, Skrelv should be reasonably good in that matchup against Rakdos. So we might not really have a clear picture of what happens to this deck versus Rakdos after Skrelv exists, because there's just not as much of a sample size here right now. 
One thing about the Abzan Auras deck is I if this is the same list that I played, this is no Glade Cover Scout, which is probably part of the why part of the reason why you see it went 0 3 against Rakdos. But if you look at the rest of the matchups, 6 0 against Monogreen, 3 0 against Gruel, 5 0 against Lotus Field, uh, only 1 0 against against Mono White. But yeah, just like that specific you know, combination is, I think that's kind of what they decided is that they were like, well, we don't want to have to mulligan to Glade Cover Scout. We just won't play it. We'll, we'll punt our Rakdos matchup. We'll beat everything else. And that's what they did. Yep. So. Yeah. And that's, that's exactly the next thing I was going to say, actually. And this is the deck that Aaron was talking about when he was trying to explain to people, it's okay to play a deck that loses to Rakdos, even if it feels bad, because look at these numbers against everything else. So the other thing I like about Auras, honestly, too, is that it is a budget-ish friendly deck depending on how you manage to get a hold of mana confluences so i think that that's a nice <laughs> thing as well you know what i mean like so i'm glad i'm glad to see a deck that's a little bit on the cheaper end do well at pro tours like this and you know always hated boggles in modern but for some reason in the in this like mid-sized um eternal format i've enjoyed playing the auras decks as they've come and gone so do you, it's okay when there's only four boggles yes i think that's true that's true right um so you think this deck will be around for a little bit right it's tough because it's one of those things where if very similar and modern to like, you know, dredge and, and these kinds of things, it's one of those, if the deck picks up a lot of popularity, there are plenty of good sideboard cards that you can play. Mm -hmm. So we'll have to see, you know, if it picks up enough to where it's, you know, maybe third, fourth, fifth, sixth most played deck, more sideboard cards get added like back to nature. I don't know if you played against that card before, but it is uh, yeah. impossible to beat. Yeah. So. <laughs> You're just done. That's why you should, that's why you need a spell pierce in your deck. And then you're just doing a whole different thing, you know. Uh, all right. So the next deck on this list, and this is a deck that we kind of dragged a little bit last week. It's we grease. It's grease fang. <laughs> okay. This was the wildest thing to me is that grease fang was actually the most winning deck in the tournament with. A 67.6% win rates. Here's the funniest thing about it. So Frank was nice enough to include confidence intervals in all of his notes here. So Greasefang went 23 and 11, and Greasefang is the only deck where its entire confidence interval is above 50%. So even accounting for variance, according to math, which you know Frank is good at, Frank Carson is good at, I hear, um, it, sh it should have been the a positive deck the whole way. And this deck just ripped up the top three decks in the meta. It went eight and one against Rakdos, five and one against Monogreen Devotion, and two and zero oh against Gruel Vehicles. A little bit worse against some of the other decks, and clearly it didn't capture all of the matchups they had. But what happened <laughs> with with Grease Fang? So I think maybe we kind of uh, underestimated it a little bit. You know, we talked about how it was a. Uh, a very, uh, you know, maybe a more of a high variance deck. One thing I, I will note here, and there's some really uh, interesting, I guess, tech, but it's more so the absence of Seder Wayfinder. So I'm looking at David mm -hmm. Inglis' deck right now. And we have no Seder Wayfinder and I believe three Vessel of Nascency. Yeah. Now, one of the more played common hate cards is like, 
like the sorcery speed graveyard hate stuff, like unlicensed terse, um, graveyard trespasser, stuff like that. And the issue with Seder Wayfinder is you're dumping the Barhelion on your main face. So if your opponent has one of those pieces of graveyard hate, you're, you're effectively getting two for one. So by playing with Vessel, you can go turn one Vessel. If your opponent has, you know, a hearse or something, you just don't activate the Vessel, use a removal spell on the hearse or, or what have you. And you're not exposing your stuff to main to the to the main phase graveyard hate, which I like a lot. I think this list is incredible. Yeah. Um, very very well thought out. Very you know, you're not losing a lot of consistency because you're still you still have the graveyard enable. You're just swapping it around and and you're doing it at instant speed uh, and loading up on like salvage and vessel. So I think the list is really well thought out. I think it's a really good list. And uh, you know, their their whole team did I did pretty well. That that definitely crushed the tournament so yeah i gotta say a couple other notes that i noticed in david's list as well for what it's worth because this this to me felt like a totally new take on the grease fan core in in pioneer so you, you talked about vessel of nascency i don't think i've seen i think david's list had four Witherbloom commands in it as at yeah. main which i haven't seen in in a lot of the other decks especially as a four of you know Witherbloom command i feel like is a card that's like right outside of playable as far as those commands go from um Strixhaven, it's like, you know, Prismari Command is clearly the playable one. And then this, all the rest of them are kind of bad because they're expensive or sorcery speed. But Witherbloom Command at least is two mana and sorcery speed. And you can do self-mill. It's got some creature interaction as part of it. It does a bunch of different things. This deck also had three Traverse the Ulenwald, which I thought was an interesting choice to be able to play up this idea of being a delirium deck and trying to take take advantage of the um take advantage of the graveyard as much as you can you know using traverse instead of like eldritch evolution is something that lets you you know i i don't think there's any place where you're not using traverse to get grease fang in this deck because the only other two creatures in this deck are scrapwork mutt and rafine's informant i don't know when you're gonna go get one of those cards maybe what do you think Probably I don't not. think so. The, the, the nice thing about, so the kind of going back on what you're, or you know, going piggybacking on what you're saying, I can't talk today. Um, the nice you thing about a long about weekend, long drive. Eldr- that, yeah. <laughs> it's true. The really nice thing about, um, like Eldritch Evolution is kind of like a package deal. So you played alongside Stitcher Supplier and Seder Wayfinder. And as we already talked about Stater Wayfinder, it's putting your stuff in your graveyard in your main phase, which you don't want to do. And Supplier is another, you know, a, another reason of that. And I think that they really, I think that is something that they considered when constructing this deck list. Cause you don't see, you see the absence of both Evolution Wayfinder and Supplier. And you see Max Command, which is probably a nod to Monogreen because blowing up your Lano Ralph and your Wolf Haven. You know, good yeah. luck. Good luck winning that game, and a, also a nod to blue white control because evolution is one of your worst cards against blue white control because you have yeah. to sacrifice creature, get two for one. So I think this list is incredibly metagamed, incredibly well built, and uh, also cyborg forward Lily out of the veils. They they definitely were prepared for blue white. Yeah, yeah. It's fascinating to see after being like, ah, this deck is just full RNG to see someone come along and go, no, this core is actually really good. Let me show you how to turn it into something that has is a little grindier, a little more thought out, I thought was really cool. And then the last deck I had in this kind of rogues area is uh, Omnath to Light. So players went 19 and 2 with this deck with a 61.3% win percentage. And this deck, you know, we haven't talked about this kind of four-color control kind of deck or four color mid-range depending on how you want to think about it but the idea behind this is basically it's your bring to light package just like you see in modern just like you used to see some of in the niv list 
but this doesn't have to play all those awkward gold cards that Niv has to play. It just gets to play your Valky. It gets to play your, um, you know, you get to play Slaughter Game still. You get to play, I don't have the list right in front of you, you get to play your One Wrath, like that kind of thing. I just thought this was an interesting take to just go, you know, maybe Omnath is just good enough as as a target for this a surprise surprise that uh, Omnaf could be good enough of course but you don't have to do the the Niv to light stuff anymore and go all the way up there you just go for for Omnath and I thought it was really interesting yeah I uh it's funny you funny you put this in the notes because I actually played this deck uh, on stream today oh nice and played a, played a couple of weeks with it initially I thought that like you you had mentioned cutting Niv uh, Niv Mizzet and the reason a lot of people on stream were asking me you know why would you cut Niv Mizzet and this deck the deck was playing four Chain of the Rocks and four Leyland Binding as its removal spells right. and a lot of the Niv list before I had to play a mix of Dreadbore Abrupt Decay Vanishing Verse all this kind of stuff all these I mean, like Oath situational gold like, cards yeah yeah and you just get to play the cleanest removal spells. Yeah. You still have a lot of the good bring to light targets. You have Valky, you have the selfless glyph weaver, uh, extinction event, slaughter games, but you just get to play, you know, better removal. You don't have to play all these crappy gold cards. And I actually felt like the list was really good. And I'm not surprised to see that their, their win rate was exceptional in this pro tour. Yeah. Yeah. Coolest card in this list. I have to say though, was courier's briefcase. Oh Yeah. And had a courier's briefcase in it. You get a token, you get a treasure token, essentially. You get a citizen token. I don't know why you want a 1-1. But also, later, you can play Wooburg to draw three off of it if you want to as well, which is a pretty interesting just card that, I don't know, I, w I don't think, in my mind, I would never give that card a second look. And somehow someone was like, you know what? This does some stuff for us. It lets us cast Bring to Light a, a turn earlier if we want to. And then also, late game, it's not the worst thing in the world. Out of two leagues, how many times do you think I sacrifice Courier's Briefcase? For mana or to draw three? No, draw three. Once. Four times. Four times. Wow. <laughs> it really comes up. Yeah, it really comes up. I mean, you just, you trade a lot of one for one. And, you know, I was, it's it's basically like Sylvan Carrier did five and six with just a ton of upside. Right. I was going to say this is basically Niv-Mizzet, right? Because it's Wooberg draw three. <laughs> yeah. Right. Yeah. So there you go. Mole Drifter. I mean, we haven't had a real Omnath deck in Pioneer for a minute, I feel like. So it's interesting to see people kind of find a home for a card that's clearly powerful. I mean, it's powerful enough that people talk about wanting it banned in Modern sometimes. So a lot of times, I'm not surprised to see these strategies that the key cards are in Pioneer try to get them ported down into Modern when it's possible, like Creativity as well. I, I think a lot of people just assume that Omnath is banned in Pioneer. Really? <laughs> yeah, that's probably true. I mean, I assume that someone told me Tybalt's Trickery. Someone said, oh, yeah, well, Tybalt's Trickery can kill people. On turn two in Pioneer, I was like, that card's not banned in Pioneer? Guess not. All right, all you Tybalt's Trickery stands, come back to, come back to Pioneer. Dave, uh, I'm secretly Shane, here. You're not even on this app. <laughs> no, 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 I'm not. But I, I thought that I would crash the ad break because, you know, you know, astute listeners have likely noticed that we have not had the patented Barrister Man ad drop. So what we've been doing is just sort of waiting for some new stuff to come in from our buddy Will over at Barrister and Man. And we got some really interesting things recently that I thought we should talk about and tell our devoted Barrister and Man fans out there all about. 
We're going to talk about colognes for the first time, I think, I think with some depth. Right. Is that right? I think we should because I now have two different Barrister and Man fragrances. And so I, when I got these from Will, I... I, I honestly have ne- never had anything quite like them because much like everything else Barrister Man does, these are novel, they are pretty intense, and they are a statement piece that really speaks to, I think, uh, Will's love of fragrance, his devotion to the art, and the devotion to making novel products. Yeah, but let's talk about cologne for a second. It's okay to wear cologne, right? You know, it's weird that I used to... You know, until like my twenties, I I thought it was like kind of weird. I was like, oh man, I could I don't have the confidence to pull this off. But I think that as I've gotten older and I've become sort of more more confident and just like you know want to make a little bit of a statement, want to smell like something, and I think I, I'm really into it. Like I, I I like cologne. I wear cologne every day. Oh, Not a lot. There you go. Not too much. So let's let's talk about the ones that you've been trying out. Then what do yeah. you have? Okay, so on my left wrist, right now is Romance in Middlesex County, Eau de Parfum, okay? And I, th- I have to say that the description of this scent, I'm sure it's leading me, but it, it's right on the money, right? It's, it's like tangerine, it's like coffee, it's like jasmine, you know, it's, it's sandalwoody, like everything, but man, it is, it, it's honestly like nothing I've ever had before. The coffee is really interesting and the cardamom is really interesting, but then it has like this huge like citrus balance to it that I think is really cool and I'm into it. Like I only have like a small sample vial, but I could definitely use more of this because it's just, it's kind of a special occasion type thing. But I think because it's not, you know, it's not quite as easy wearing as like an everyday thing, but it's, it's definitely like a going out at night, going on a date type thing. And I think it's really cool. Yeah. What do you have? Only available in sample vials right now, Romance of Middlesex County. So keep it in mind, eight ninety nine if you just want to get a tester from of that from Will. Yeah. And while you're there, you can also check out what I have. Yeah, what do you got? So I have a couple. One I have is called it's called Fougere Gothique. Dave, I have that. This as is well. kind of a this this is kind of a, a one that if you want to make more of a definitive statement, <laughs> uh you would consider you would consider this one. It's a bit smoky. Okay. Um I'm gonna it's hit, got I'm some kind of right now. Okay. Yeah. You tell me what you think about it. Okay. No, you tell me and then I'll, I'll, I'll agree or disagree. Yeah. So this one for me really has this kind of musky, smoky scent. Oh yeah. No, this is cool. It's like, yeah, I get the ash that you're talking about, but then it has like this huge, like lavender, like leatheriness to it, I think is really cool. Yeah. So that's if you want to make a big statement, you check out Fougere Gothique. And then I also have this other one that Will sent me that is called Just Right for a Tuesday. I think Stan likes this one. Yes. And this one is Just Right for a Tuesday. I love the concept that Will had behind it. It's just kind of like a light kind of scent that you can wear, fragrance that you can wear that's not too much. You can wear it to the office. You can have a fragrance perspective without making a fragrance announcement, let's say. (laughs) And you have to have those. You have to have kind of your everyday ones. You have to have kind of your, you know, your statement ones for a special occasion. And if you are interested in checking out the fragrances over at Barrister and Man, they have the Cologne selection, uh, including the classic uh, Seville Eau de Toilette, which is you know their one of their foundational smells. I have that Eau de Toilette. That's awesome. That's in my regular rotation. 
There's a Maryland, which is one of the new releases. I have the shaving soap of that, which is awesome. I'll talk more about that in coming weeks. So head on over to Barrister and Man, M-A-N-N, use coupon code THEDIVEDOWN2023 for 15% off your first order there. And let's we'll know that you came through us and smell just right for a Tuesday. And then that, that leads us to our next take, which is basically there's actually even more decks that did better than the format standard bearers. If they and they didn't really feel broken, but there's two metagame calls that just did fine. And those are Enigmatic Fires, which is a deck that you had said you thought had some some potential to top eight. And guess what? It did top eight and it topped forward, just like you, just like you mentioned last week. And then Selesnia Angels is the other one. You know, Enigmatic Fires had a 52% win rates. Seems like it could have fared better in a field with so much Rakdos, but it is what it it is what it is. They didn't draw the draw the uh, matchups maybe as much. And then Selesnia Angels went 50 54% win rates. You know, Masahide Mor- Moriyama was one win away with the deck and finished in 7th place. The thing I would like I don't really want to point out, but I would just mention about this is that Moriyama went 9 and 1 and constructed with Angels and went had an 03 draft on day 2. And that probably is the thing that pre- prevented um, them from making the, the top eight, unfortunately. That's tough. Yeah, <laughs> that's really tough. Okay, so there's a lot of decks, right? Like, I mean, these these we talked about the tier two of the meta. Now we're talking about all these other decks that kind of popped up. Do we think that any of these broke it? Like, do you think that when, when we said last week, yeah, there's a chance someone could break it? They're, these aren't new decks that broke it, but they are different you know they're from uh, metagamed from cards that we already had access to like what what do you think about this tier i think if i had to look at all of the decks in this tier and i was like you know forced to pick one that i think would would have necessarily defined as broke it i think probably the grease fang deck which is you know not something i thought i was going to say last week we had, you mm-hmm. know i know we had talked about it we had kind of maligned it a little bit but the innovations that 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 team made were just incredible. I think that they're very, very smart in terms of what they were preparing for. Um, one thing I will note about the enigmatic fires too. Derek Davis uh, has been on an absolute tear as of late. Derek Davis yeah. was a uh, mox championship competitor, nerd rage, nerd rage championship competitor won the showcase challenge with enigmatic incarnation, which we talked about last week and then following it up with, you know, another insane performance here. So just, and I, I believe he's, you know, just done it all the way with incarnation. So very, 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 um, you know, very good player. I watched him play in top eight too, and he just played phenomenally. Yeah. So yeah. I, yeah. Not, and not also got the, to see him do well. Yeah, and got the Rakdos matchup in top eight as well to get into the top four, right? He he played against Shoda, right? Oh, he def yeah, he he beat the crap out of Shoda. <laughs> it was it was brutal. I mean, like you said, it's I mean he he also played against Rakdos three times in the Swiss and went three zero. So it's the deck is clearly a, a, a Rakdos killer for sure. All right, yeah, I want to look at Frank's. I want to look at Frank's thing real quick. Sure. Let's see where is. Enigmatic Fires, 12 and 11. Enigmatic Fires. Yeah, 6 and 0 against Rakdos. Yep. So. <laughs> 6 and 0 against Rakdos, 0 and 3 against Mono Green, 0 and 2 against Vehicles, 0 and 1 against Lotus Field, 1 and 0 against Mono White Humans. And then it kind of goes from there. All right. Well, that's kind of like a lot of stuff on the meta. 
hopefully kind of organizing it there by just headlines, I think gives people kind of a story as we go through it. But I do have some more kind of like last couple of things before we get out of the tournament. The seventh thing I had on my mind after thinking about this tournament for a while, writing about it was, and tell me what you think about this, Fable the Mirror Breaker is just the best card in the format. Here's what I'm going to agree. Here's, here's, here's my case. Oh, you agree right off the top. All right. So <laughs> here's the case for this, though, for people who are curious. In Frank's preview article, when he showed the meta that was registered for the tournament, the most non-played non-land cards across all main decks were Fable, Thoughtseize, Fatal Push, Llanowar Elves, Elvish Mystic, and Bonecrusher Giant. You know, it's interesting to see this is the class of Pioneer. These are cards that we talked about last week. These are things that we recognize as the best ramp spell, great removal, or two great two-for-ones, excellent hand disruption, most efficient removal spell. The decks that had that really relied on these cards, though, had the worst, <laughs> the worst rates, with one exception, and that's Fable. And then Fable also turned out to be in Creativity. It was in Omnath to Light. It was in Enigmatic Fires. Of course, it was in Rakdos Mid and Rakdos Sack. You know, Rakdos Mid didn't do great. Rakdos Sack did do well. I think it's just the best card in the format. Why do you think that is? How do you think we got to a point where this three-mana enchantment that nobody paid attention to at spoiler season turned out to be the best card in this format? And honestly, good enough for, like, slow deck modern play like there's not a ton of decks in modern that can play it but it comes up enough you know it comes up in creativity and modern for example yeah i mean you know going back on on modern just real quickly you know creativity wasn't as far as i remember it really wasn't that much of a thing before fable i know people had had tried it but it was kind of on the fringes up until when when fable was printed and that was really just a, a massive printing but the the reason i think the card is is so you know, it, it just offers so many decks, so many different things. So in Rakdos, it when when you're playing Rakdos, you have a lot of like situational removal spells, discard spells that aren't quite as good past, you know, a certain point if your opponent has run out of cards. And Fable allowing you to filter, you know, otherwise dead draws. Even if you look at the creativity deck, a lot of situational removal spells, you know, you have World Spine Worm and Xenagos, which most of the times, it, well, you could still cast Xenagos, but World Spine Worm does nothing in your hand. So, it's, yeah. you know, be able to get that one out of there. Um, so it offers you like the card discard two, draw two is almost worth like a card, maybe a card and a half. Most of the time you get the two, two, which is worth a card. If the two, two lives, you get another card. And then if, at the end of the day, you still get another card. So, I mean, it's realistically, it's like a five for one if it's, I know, know, unless they count it on the stack. So it just, it, it's, even though it's slow, Pioneer is a format where the format, it's not as fast as modern. So it, you know, you have a lot more time to develop Fable and get the full value out of all three, out of all the chapters. And the other thing is, you know, we're seeing it a lot, a lot of the the fable decks, some of them even paired alongside elves to get it, you know, even a turn, even a turn, get it into play a turn slow, a turn faster. But yeah, I a hundred percent agree with you. I think fable is just, you know, by far and head and shoulders, the best card in the format. And, uh, yeah, definitely. Is this card in trouble in a format where we banned expressive iteration? Like (laughs) it's true. This isn't that far off, right? I guess that is a good point. Expressive iteration did get banned. Uh, we'll see what happens. You know, I, it, it, it was, was it the actual most played card? Let me see if I can find the numbers here. So we look at the most played cards. It was Black Cleave Cliffs at 129, Copper Line 81, and whatever. We don't count the land. Skrelv at 44, Miglos 38. This is just the new Thrown cards, it. I think, the list you're oh, looking at. Oh, that's the at. new cards. Yeah. 
Oh, it is. They don't know if they have the actual list of the total cards, but we'll see if we can. Yeah, yeah. in any case, we'll see if we can find that. Yep. But yeah, I don't know. I, I could I could definitely see a world like if you if you told me tomorrow if I woke up tomorrow and you told me that Fable was was no longer in the format. Like I don't know if I'd be a hundred percent surprised because of how powerful it is and how much card advantage it provides. But you know, I. Now that Pioneer is kind of maybe on the on the backseat for another whatever until the next Pioneer Pro Tour is for the most part, um, I'd like to see maybe some other shakeups happen. I could see some unbans or, you know, maybe some other things that could happen. Yeah. But, yeah. you know, at the end of the day, I wouldn't be surprised in the, in the long run if it didn't. Yeah. I'm definitely not asking you to say if it should be banned or not because that's when we get the emails <laughs> is when we is when we uh, claim. Okay. I'm just feeling – I'm starting to feel like it's like a DEF CON three here where you're kind of like i you know i'd be keeping an eye on it just given given other the past all right so next next thing so we, we add up all this stuff together and i was thinking about this this really and we, we kind of touched on this a little bit but you know a lot of people are asking what are our expectations of the meta shifting based on the top eight in this tournament today here's what i think i, I think that the meta at your lgs likely won't change long-term because of the results of this pro tour with the exception of maybe one or two decks. But I don't think suddenly people are going to stop taking Rakdos to tournaments, or it's going to stop taking Monogreen devotion to tournaments at your store, at the places, or even at, at RCQs or even the RCs at pioneers, they come up. And what do you have in your hands there? These are the Herald, Herald, the United oh. elves, the, the Moritz. <laughs> your Moritz. Oh, That's gosh. my LGS. I, <laughs> Were you surprised that 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 uh, deck didn't come up at all? Oh, not at all. I did not at all. Bad. <laughs> <laughs> That's funny. Yeah, I mean, our listener Kiefer asks, you know, what kind of expectations do we have in the metagame shifting based on the top eight? What sideboard cards do we be looking at to combat them? Do we need to prepare for new decks when thinking about Pioneer? I think my answer is probably not really. But what do you think? Yeah, for the most part, I think that what you what you see at your LGS is going to be what you see moving forward, um, with the exception of maybe Boggles, because as you said, that deck is fairly cheap to assemble, and you know maybe if you have somewhat of a modern collection already and you already have the Mana Confluences and maybe you have the Temple Gardens, there's really not that much else in the deck. Right. So maybe see an uptick in Boggles because the deck is so cheap. But yeah, for the most part, you know, the rest of uh, there are some cards in Pioneer that are, uh, you know, fairly expensive. So with that in particular, you have to keep that in mind with LGSs. People don't want to always go out and buy a bunch of brand new cards just to go and play FNM. So I think for the most part, it'll stay the same with maybe a, maybe a small uptick in boggles. Yeah. How about creativity? You think there could be an uptick in creativity too? That card's so expensive. Yeah. I mean, creativity is, and also, um, you know, World Spine Worm isn't the easiest thing to get a hold of. Xenogod might be hard to get a hold of these days, too. But all right, but here's what I do think. So I, I think the, the ninth and basically final thought that we had about the, or I had about the tournament that I want to run by Devin bef as we get out of this part is I think the Pioneer meta at your, at your store will still change a lot because Phyrexia All Will Be One did not really make a splash in this tournament almost at all. So outside of the lands, there wasn't really that much stuff that showed up. So as we were talking about a minute ago, you know, the lands were pretty high and then the, the number one played card 
was Skrelv with 44 copies, then Miglaws with 38 copies, then Thrun with 15 copies, then Luka Bound to Ruin with 15 copies. You know, and as you said, that's a card that's a little bit sideboard-ish, right? Like it's not, in this case, it had 11 in the sideboard and four in main decks. Filigree Silex, and then you're kind of into the swords, ossification, and then Elish Norn, which is a one-of in a lot of decks, but that still only had 10 copies. So I still feel like there's a ton of stuff out here that's missing, right? And is this the area where maybe you were expecting to see more decks based on this? One thing I will say here, which makes me very, very sad, zero copies of Typhoon. I know, me too. I, you know, I had such high hopes. Yeah, that also means zero copies of Vanifar, Devin, which means no yeah, tattoo. I know, that's true. <laughs> I guess that's good news for it you. It is. Yeah, I don't have the money or the time but, for a full back piece right now, but... <laughs> There's always time, right? Yeah. Down the road. But yeah, these, um, a lot of these results, you know, we, like, if you look at Thrun, for example, well, okay, so you get, you know, 44 Skrelv, 38 Miglaw. So Skrelv was pretty much, I think some of the mono white decks had it, a lot of the uh, Auras decks had it. And yep. then you have Miglaws, all 38 copies, all in the main deck. And then after 44 and 38, the next one down is Thrun at 15, but they were all sideboard. Yeah. So there wasn't even any, you know, I, I'm pretty sure these were all just like mono green sideboards, if I recall correctly, or maybe maybe a couple in gruel. Yeah. But yeah, not a ton here from the new set, which was a little surprising. You know, I'm very surprised that at least nobody pulled the trigger on Hammer. I feel I felt like maybe there just wasn't enough time before the Pro Tour. Maybe people weren't kind of convinced on it and they were maybe kind of settling where I was, where it was maybe the deck needs a little bit more of a robust backup plan. Like the combo itself is really powerful. Scan plus hammer plus uh, cigar to aid. But you need to find uh, you need to find a better plan B. And then again, as we said, no copies of Tyvar. Very sad to see that. Um, you know, no elves, no Vanifar, none of none of that kind of. I stuff. I was surprised to see that there weren't any copies of Atraxa. Like especially with creativity becoming a a big thing. I kind of thought maybe that that card would rate as a sideboard option, especially you know. But I guess that maybe. Channel Fireball either didn't have the time to test it out or just felt like it wasn't really a fit for the metagame as it was. The thing about Atraxa is the the reason that creativity gets a lot of percentage points in so many matchups is the fact that it has the ability to just kind of kill you on turn five. Whereas if you put Atraxa in your deck, you're not necessarily, you don't have that closing speed that the that the World Spine Worm Senegos offers you. I tried a bunch of different, I will say there were four copies in the tournament, but I if I remember correctly, I think they were all in Lotus Field sideboards. I think it was Joel Asset's team. They all played one copy. Hmm. So that that is, you know, something there. But I was more of a big fan of it in the like the transmogrify deck because that's where you want to just, you know, tra transmogrify is um, effectively a polymorph. But the nice thing about it is you, you get to play artifacts. So you actually get to play Courier's Briefcase, which allows you to do it a turn early. And you don't you're not trying to do creativity X equals two because you're just putting one attracts into play. But that might have that might have, you know, stared some of the creativity players away from. Um, Sword of Forge and Frontier at 13 copies, but 10 of them were in the sideboard, which is, that was kind of my take as well. What I'm a little more surprised is the 15 copies of Luka, only four in the main deck. I, I was fairly high on that card in terms of, you know, its main deck potential in boats. 
Um, so a little surprised to only see four in the main deck out of the 15. And then the rest of this list, we got Zealot's Conviction. I don't even know what that card does. I'm not looking it up. <laughs> and then uh, Prophetic Prism, which is a fake new card because I think it was already legal in Pioneer. So that's kind of cheating. But yeah, overall, uh, you know, I think there's some there's definitely more room to brew. And, uh, you know, I- I'm going to keep. Brewing, yeah. So I mean, and that's where I think it's going to happen here, especially, you know, we've got a six weeks or so, whatever, until March of the Machine comes out. And there's just a lot of stuff to still check out and see if we can get a Tyvar deck to work, if we can get a Kemba deck to work. Mind Splice Apparatus, there was one person who brought that that deck. It seems like there's a lot going on there to figure out. So, um, you know, Mickey, one of our listeners, asked, you know, what card or cards from one were you most surprised to not see represented? All of them, I would say, except for Skrelf <laughs> and Miglos. Like, those turned out to be the two clear ones that made sense. Yeah, Ty, Tyvar would be my number my number one surprise to not see anybody. That's play. my honest answer too. My re- my real answer, my non hyperbolic answer. Um, all right, the last thing was this. This was a great top eight, right? This is like an unbelievable oh, yeah. top eight. List, <laughs> Pretty good. This one. list of names: Gabe Nassif, Reed Duke, Shota Yasaoka, Nathan Stoyer. Okay, that's four. That's three Hall of Famers and the reigning world champ. And then Derek Davis, who you talked about, who is on a tear right now, has. I think he was in a mox recently and also was in the energy championship series final as well. Not the final final, but I think he made it all the way to the top eight. And then there were good RC qualifiers from Chris Ferber, Benton Madsen, who had a great run. And then Takumi Matsura on mono white. And so it was a pretty good mix of all time world beaters and some newcomers. And then the wildest thing to me about this, honestly, was the fact that the finals were Reed versus Benton. And that was the same matchup as the first match that was broadcast and constructed on Friday. And Reed lost that one. He lost round round four or whatever, and then came back and won it in the rematch in the finals. But our top four predictions were not very great. So mine was Rakdos mm. times two, blue-white control, and mono-blue spirit. So I had one of the decks I said made it in the top eight, and that was it. Shane said Rakdos which made in the top eight, Lotus, two in the top eight, none of the top four. So he actually did an okay job with getting the top eight decks. One blue-white control. He and I were too high on blue-white control, I guess. And then one rogue, he said, and included an enigmatic in the couple of dick decks that he le- listed there. So we got to give him a check mark for that. Ah, do we? <laughs> He's not here. He's so. not here. That's, that's true. Maybe not. And then you said one Rakdos mid, one Enigmatic Fires, which if I had a bell, I would ring it, one Gruel Vehicles, and one Vanifar. I'm not going to give you too much guff about Vanifar right now, but... No. <laughs> nah. But yeah, I mean, you know, I know that we pulled those names out of a hat, but actually, you know, we kind of got around it. We just, I think that none of us really saw Channel Fireball picking up creativity is what happened. And none of us took blue our mono white too serious. So that's kind of where it was at. Yeah, I think my one thing that I like my initial read on the situation was that I thought that people thought more people would play blue white control. And like I thought at least it, it like if I was playing in the pro tour in my expected metagame, I probably would have had blue white control third or fourth. I don't know why, but it's just, you know, control players, P- PT players love playing control. So the blue white matchup is really sketchy for the creativity deck, which is why, you know, when we talked about our metagame predictions last week, I kind of just, I didn't really write it off per se, but we, I didn't expect it to do well because I expected 
people to prepare for blue white control. And if they're preparing for blue white control, then they don't want to play creativity, but maybe they had a different read of the metagame and they definitely got it right. But what happens if the players that were going to play blue white control are the same players that decide to play creativity? Cause that's kind that kind of could have been what happened, right? We saw that Gabe Nassif was testing out Demir control last week and I forget the other player that was on his team that we were talking. Oh, it was uh, Wafo was also testing out Demir Control last week. Maybe they played around with Control for a while and decided, guess what? This is bad. We need to switch to something else. So it's almost as if <laughs> they almost like picked their own meta because they could have been the people that led to Blue White being overrepresented. True. That's a yeah. good point. I like that. But anyway, it's a great tournament. And uh, thanks for going through that with me. It was fun to just kind of catch up and see what, you know, what we all thought about it. I think Pioneer is fun. Like I said, we're going to lessen our focus on the format here on the show coming up soon. But, um, you know, I think it's a good balanced format. I know you devote plenty of time to it as well. What's your one last thought about Pioneer before we kind of close this segment and talk about a couple of spoiler cards? People are not playing enough copies of Love Struck Beast in their boats deck. I've seen a lot of lists like trimming going to two and three, and I tried that a little bit as well. But uh, yeah, play four of that card. It's really good. There you go. It's a two for one. All right. Well, we're going to take a little break, and then we'll come right back and talk quickly in a wind down section about the random March of the Machine cards that we got. Stay with us. Okay, so believe it or not, after all that talk we had about the Pro Tour, we have some cards to talk about, some new cards to talk about from the set that's not even going to be out until April. And that set, March the Machines, looks, honestly, it looks like Avengers Endgame. I know it's supposed to look like Avengers Endgame. That's 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 what it is. It's the universe coming together to fight Elish Norn. But, you know, I thought it would be fun for a little quick segment after all the Pro Tour talk to just kind of talk about some of the cards that were interesting here. There's weird flavor stuff. We won't get into it. Phyrexia is messing up everything. We're going to get greatest hits of all the planes. They're blowing up all the planes. It's what they like to do in Magic. We know we know how it is. But there were three cards that stood out to me that I thought would be cool to talk about. Devin, glad to hear any cards that you thought were interesting that you would want to add to the list as well. But the first one for me was actually an invitational card, which we haven't seen for a minute. Um, and that is Yuta Takahashi's World Champ card. And that is Fairy mastermind it's a generic and a blue for a fairy rogue it's a 2-1 flash flying whenever an opponent draws their second card each turn you draw a card and it has the activated ability of three generic and a blue each player draws a card this card is sweet i, I don't know what where this card goes but this card is great i love it yeah, yeah. like can you imagine somebody get casting a cantrip and you just respond and flash this guy in yeah <laughs> it just seems exactly so good. I, mean, I mean that's what it's supposed to be too so i've heard that he kind of designed it for potential legacy play essentially to kind of punish people for playing brainstorm which yeah. you know let's punish people for blame playing brainstorm i'm fine with that but i would love to see this card potentially end up in like rogues and pioneer you know as a card that's good and against phoenix or something like that or even someplace in modern although modern has its complications with card draw right now because it still has expressive iteration yeah and this doesn't trigger off expressive iteration which is kind of awkward and it's like you know a lot of people play teferi time raveler but if they you know, minus Teferi. Well, if, if they play Teferi and you respond with this, they just uptick. They don't they don't bounce or they just bounce your two one and then you can't recast it again. So it's kind of awkward against Teferi. Right. It's super awkward because you suddenly can't cast it as Flash anymore. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> That's too bad. Um, 
I don't know. What do you think about this deck in like Pioneer or just or one of the lower powered formats? Uh, it is a rogue, which is, as you said, very important creature typing. So I could definitely see it in like the the rogue shell because that deck is really trying to play on its opponent's turn with all the, the flash rogues and stuff like that. So um, I could see it as like, you know, a one or two of it. It is, you know, two mana, two one flash flying is just good stats especially when you're trying to like play that tempo style game, but kind of beat down, kind of not beat down. So I, I could see it definitely being a, a card you maybe want to play in rogues, or maybe as even like a sideboard option in like a control mirror breaker kind of thing. It's also like kind of weirdly powerful with Narset where it's like Narset shuts off your opponent from drawing extra cards. But if you have this in play with Narset, then they don't draw extra cards off the ability. It's just four mana draw cards. So keep that in mind as well. Oh, yeah, that's interesting. I forgot about that part, too. Yeah, this card is a well-designed, interesting card, though, I think, for sure. And, of course, I think it's hard to find a Magic player who doesn't have a soft spot for, you know, generic blue two-ones with flash. You know, R.I.P. All right, next card on the list. Thalia and the Gitrog Monster. Okay, this is... <laughs> These are weird. Excuse me? There's a whole, yeah, exactly. <laughs> There's a whole cycle of cards in this set that are like, let's take two iconic creatures from legends, really, two iconic legendary creatures from a plane and put them on a card together. So this is Thalia literally riding on the f giant frog that is the Gitrog monster. So the type line says legendary creature, human frog horror. Still not as good as Vanifar's type line of elf ooze wizard but uh so this is this card costs generic white black green first strike death touch you may play an additional land on each of your turns creatures and non-basic lands your opponent's control enter the battlefield tapped whenever thalia and the gitrog monster attacks sacrifice a creature or land then draw a card it's a four four so this is literally the abilities of thalia heretic cathar <laughs> stapled, together. stapled <laughs> together with gitrog right this is hilarious Oh my goodness. This this spoiler season is going to be really fun. <laughs> I I don't yeah, it's going to be totally absurd. But this card like I mean here's here's one thing. I look at this card and I'm like, how was I ever happy casting Urnum Jin? Like <laughs> I know right. That's what I used to do. For, I loved it. I loved it. I was like, I have Urnum Jin and I will win because I have Swords of Plowshares as well and that's that's my whole deck. But so this is a 4/4 that draws a card, lets you play as an extra land and cannot lose in combat. But, I mean Good. How many creatures do you have to put in front of this thing to kill it? Uh, at least at least two, most likely. Yeah, exactly. I kind of like it, though. Oh, first strike and death touch. I missed the death touch part. Okay, yeah. never mind. Yeah, that's uh, You're not blocking this thing. Right, no, like never blocking this. Unless you have another first striker, which is not going to... You have your own Thalia and the Gitrog monster, and then maybe you're cool with trading, I guess. I like it, though. It's got, it's got good stats. White, black, green for Pioneer is a little sketchy. Not sure. Like, maybe you would consider this in, like, the Enigmatic Shell as, like, because, like, if you end of turn, get it, like, their stuff comes into play taps, and maybe that buys you a turn, and then you get to, like, hit trigger, sack creature. Yeah, I, I could see it being good. Yeah. Maybe, I, I don't know if it's, like, maybe potentially good in Modern, but probably not. Yeah, I think it's too it's too weird for modern. I think like too many of these type lines don't mean anything. Modern is just about a whole different thing these days. I think than this card is about. Um, I do. It does make me want. I mean, one of the dreams of people always is like we do have a good mid range deck in that format, of course. But everybody always wants to be able to play Obzon, right? It's like okay, can we play Siege Rhino with Thalia, and that's <laughs> going to make it awesome suddenly? I don't think so, but I don't know. 
Abzan and Pioneer. We get we could play Siege Rhino. Yeah, exactly. Let's maybe we'll go for it. Maybe this will be the card that brings it home, and you get to play Glissa, the new Glissa, Gitrog Monster, and Siege Rhino together, and some kind of unholy and and with elves. You know, elves are good, so you get to ramp into them and etc. Cetera, etc. Cetera. But my question for you is, what's the combo card that you want to see most that they haven't put out yet? Do you do you have thoughts about this? Well, I mean, the one that I want to see the most that's not going to happen is Oroko. Oh, oh Oroko. Oroko. <laughs> that would be amazing. That's just like blue, blue, green, green, ETB, you win the game. Something like that. Yeah. <laughs> oh, God. This is the type of set where Oko is going to come back, though. Like, Oko will be back, maybe, or Uro might be. I don't know. Maybe we'll have a completed Oko or Uro. I don't know if you saw the the completed Heliod. Like, I didn't think the card was worth talking about right away, necessarily. But they have Heliod that turns into a Phyrexian. And I was like, this is what we're doing now? Like, we're going to go... Anyway. We're just going all over the place. Yeah. The story always confounds me with magic a little bit. But it is what it is. I mean, the one that I really want to see is is Uncle Istvan and Neal Sylvain from the Dark. Let's just have some really old cards. Just put them together. See if anybody remembers. What about like Stang and Stang and something? Stang would be a Stang would be a nice one to have like a like Stang. I don't know what you'd put with Stang though. You put Stang from Legends and the um the pirate Ramirez de Petro together. It's just Stang and Ramirez. <laughs> awesome. All right, and then the last one, Omnath Locus of All. It is white, blue, black Phyrexian, red, green, legendary creature. Phyrexian Elemental. So Omnath has been has been completed. And here's the text of this card. It's a 4-4. It says, if you would lose unspent mana, that mana becomes black instead. At the beginning of your pre-combat main phase, look at the top card of your library. You may reveal that card if it has three or more colored mana symbols in its cost. If you do, add three mana in any combination of colors and put it into your hand. If you don't reveal it, put it into your hand. That second paragraph... Hold on, I got lost at black mana. Can you go again? Yeah. For sure. I mean, here's what it does. At the beginning of, of your main phase, you get to look at the top card. And if it has three mana symbols on it, you basically... So if it's a charm, let's say it's like Jeskai charm for some reason. Or Siege Rhino. Or Siege Rhino. Oh, yeah. Or Siege Rhino. <laughs> Nailed it. Or Siege Rhino. You get to add the colored mana you need to cast those to your mana pool and then use it. And then if you don't... Either way, you get to draw it. So it's just kind of like saying you get to add add the mana to cast it if you want. This is super complicated. <laughs> it's a weird one. It's a weird one. Yeah, and and the first sentence is if you if you would lose on spent mana, that mana becomes black. So you just get black mana that just sits in your mana pool forever. Is that what that says? Yeah. So when I first saw this card, I was thinking about like it's like a maybe like a weird wilderness reclamation where if you like have this in play. And then you're you just have all of your lands on tap and your opponent doesn't do anything. You just go end step, you know, tap six mana on tap. And now I have six mana more in my mana pool. So I was thinking about doing some like maybe some weird thing with that. But yeah, at the end of the day, I, I feel like it's not that good, but maybe I'm just not understanding it correctly. But like the issue with it, the the reveal trigger is like you have to you have to put a lot of three mana cards in your deck in order to make the in order to actually get the mana out of it, which means you're putting a lot of three drops in your deck. And putting a lot of three drops in your deck kind of sucks. Yeah. Yeah. Mono three drop deck is probably not going to work out great for you. That's true. But wow, what a weird card. Very, very weird. <laughs> you see anything else on the list that you thought was had potential or? I got I got one here. Well, yeah, I got one. You put the Omneth on there. So this one is Galta and Maverin. Have you seen this one yet? Yes. This is the dinosaur vampire. So for, for listeners, it is three green, green, white, white. 12 12 
legendary creature, dinosaur, vampire. Trample. Whenever you attack, choose one. You can either make a tapped and attacking XX with trample, where X is your greatest power among other attacking creatures, so not counting itself, or make X11 vampires with lifelink, where X is a number of other attacking creatures. The one reason I wanted to note this, specifically in Pioneer, this is the largest vampire that you can put into play with Soren Imperious Bloodlord. Right. On turn three, actually turn two if you play a turn one Lanaroff. Imagine that, turn one Lanaroff, turn two Soren, put this into play. <laughs> <laughs> Why are they doing this to us? That's so funny. Now, I don't know if that deck's actually good. And it's not even a black card. No, it's not a black card. Yeah, I don't know if this. I don't know if that's actually good, but I am going to play a lot of that. I'm I'm going to do that a lot. That's that's what we that's call great. content. Because you you don't even care about the rest of the text in this case. What so what you're going to do is you're going to get your twelve twelve on turn three, and then you're going to attack with it on turn four, and you're going to attack with an elf with it. So you're going to get an extra one one dinosaur creature token, and that's going to be it. But yeah, Galta. That's a cool card. Yeah, I mean, I got to think there's going to be a lot of people trying to figure out how to cheat that one into play, but that Sword Imperious Bloodlord is already a card that is maybe underplayed in Pioneer as it is, and so I wouldn't be surprised if it becomes a combo piece in that sense, right? Like, Vampires was kind of a deck that was partially there at different points in time, and that that uh, sneak attack ability essentially is really good, so why not? I know people tried to do that Sword in Modern with the big Changeling guy. Do you remember people trying to do that at one point? I can't remember the Mm-mm. name of the Changeling, but it was like, it's like a eight, I, I, it's like eight mana for a 10 10 changeling or something but basically you just it's like the biggest thing that you could cheat into play with soren and uh you know this just having that kind of stats even if the ability didn't matter that much which still might it might matter you know to see what happens but yeah i I could see it being something yeah that's cool yeah i think that was it for me for now i got i got one more for the listeners this is this is my personal favorite this is yargle and multani (laughs) seen this one (laughs) Yes. So this one's very, very complicated, okay? So pay attention, listeners. This is three black, black, green. So six mana. It's a, I'll read you the text box. The text box is, I've heard much about you from my daughter. Multani rumbled. There was, a, there was a time when I'd balk at your aid, Phantom, but she has shown me the merit in Urborg's strange ways. And uh, and then it says, Ginshki uh, Pribit replied Yargle. And uh, 18, six is the stats. That's the whole card, so. Very complicated. Yeah, 6 CMC, 18-6. <laughs> I can't wait to That's cast awesome this when I have cast. Risen Reef out, so it actually does something other than coming into play. <laughs> um, pandemonium, anybody? Oh, yeah. What What is up with, with two of these like keystone cards from this set being frogs, by the way? I know, right? Do you see that coming? Not yeah, really. Yeah, frogs, frogs spirit elemental is uh, Yargle and Multani. So. so someone in the chat was telling me that this is the first the first vanilla creature to be in standard in like 18 months is really supposedly. Wow. I didn't think about that, but yeah, that's probably right. They don't, they really don't print print vanillas anymore. Yeah. Wow. So the joke with this one is just, it's two Yargles, right? It's just, it's double Yargle. Double Yargles. Yeah. Because Multani doubles things and you know, I mean, this does, is that, does Multani double things? That's what I couldn't figure out. Okay. The original Multani and pull it up here. Power toughness equal to each equal to the number of to- cards in all players' hands, so it counts yours and your opponent's. So it's kind of like double, right? Oh, all players' hands. Yep, there you go. I mean, this card just being eighteen power could be a thing for somebody, right? Like it could. And I don't know what format we're talking about here, but like you said, pandemonium hit someone for eighteen. Thud. Thud. Any yeah. thuds? <laughs> yeah. All right. Well, 
I think that's gonna gonna close us off for today. We couldn't ask for a better way to end than with Yargle and Maltani and with Devin trying to pronounce whatever it is Yargle is saying. Devin, why don't you let everybody know where they can find you? You can find me at twitch.tv slash doomwake, Twitter, YouTube, all of that stuff. Doomwake is D-0-0-M-W-A-K-E, streaming Monday through Thursday, 2 to 9 Eastern, except for today, we went until 8, and then Friday, 12 to 5 Eastern. So thank you. Awesome. Well, really excited to have you on the show again. It was a lot of fun. I appreciate you coming in to cover for those two guys who just didn't show up today somehow. So appreciate you fitting us in after your long weekend, for sure. That wraps up this week's show. If you haven't yet, make sure you subscribe to our podcast so you get the latest episodes as soon as they come out. And if you use Apple Podcasts, please leave us a rating and review. If you'd like to submit a question to the podcast or reach out, you can tweet at us at the dive down all one word or email the dive down at gmail.com. If you would like to support the show, you can check out our Patreon at patreon.com slash the dive down and also check out our store at the dive down.com slash store. Also shout out to manitraders.com for supporting the dive down. Sign up for manitraders using promo code the dive down 10 all one word for 10% off your first two months of renting magic online cards. And finally, Get some amazing shaving product soaps, body soaps, fragrances, and more at Barrister and Man using the Dive Down 15 for 15% off your first order. And then finally, finally, check out Nerd Rage Gaming for 8% off of your paper cards with code DIVE8. As always, special thanks to the bands Nowhere and Space Blood for letting us use their music. And until next week, get out there and say whatever Yargle says. <laughs>